for you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6 as we continue working our way through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Now, if you happen to miss next week, uh, excuse me, last week, the text that so many of you were waiting to see what position we would take on perhaps what is the most controversial text in all of the New Testament, then uh, feel free to pick up a, a recording of it from last week. I think there were only a dollar apiece. You get what you pay for, right? <laughs> but um, this week, last week was hard. This week I pray that your hearts will be encouraged. Read with me now, chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. The author writes, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking to you in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Reading this next set of verses, you get the distinct impression that the author is concerned that his readers not lose heart over the severe warning and reproof he just laid on them in the previous verses. The preceding verses must have struck like thunderbolts amid this little congregation by which the readers may have been stricken dead. Therefore, it was necessary to offer comfort so these precious saints would not lose heart. Nothing has more power to discourage us from faithfulness to the Lord like a sense of hopelessness. A hopeless Christian is a defeated Christian. And that's not at all what the author had hoped to produce. He didn't want to defeat us. He didn't want to discourage us. Nevertheless, he issues these terrifying warnings to the church as a whole, hoping that those who really needed them would hear and respond and repent. They needed a severe warning to awaken them to the disaster they were heading toward. By God's providence this morning, as we were driving to church, I got the last few words of the pastor of First Baptist in Dallas, and he was, and I don't remember the name of the individual he was talking about, but a football player who took the ball and started running in the wrong direction, and his buddy started running after him with all his might to tackle him to keep him from crossing the wrong goal line, and I thought in my mind, that's the author of the book of Hebrews. He is chasing these friends, these beloved friends, they're headed for the wrong goal line, and he is chasing them in order to tackle them before they reach the wrong goal. And so his words were strong, and the tackling is painful, but it was necessary to preserve them. You remember last week we looked at Matthew 13 where Jesus explained to us the parable of the, of the sower and the soils. And the warning, just in brief, was 
that of the four soils that he referred to, three of them gave the appearance of genuine salvation, but only one was genuine. Three of them gave the appearance that they were born again, but only one really was. After this, Jesus tells another parable. It's the parable of the wheat and the tares. And his point in that parable was that there will always be false converts living among the true. There will always be tares among the wheat. And much about their lives seemed to resemble that of true children of God. But despite that, deep inside they have unbelieving hearts. And the author's hope was to awaken these tares. Awaken their hearts to their need of a Savior. Awaken them to the reality that they were running toward the wrong goalpost. It was this dynamic in mind that the author of Hebrews wrote the first eight verses of chapter 6. But it was not his intention to discourage. It was not his intention to cause morbid introspection or fear or confusion among the true children of God. And I think he suspected that his words were so hard that there was some danger that some of the true saints of God in that place would have been devastated. Nevertheless, out of concern that his words may, be, may have missed their mark, he now turns his attention to the men and women whose hearts really did belong to the living Christ. And I believe his goal is to encourage them to live with a growing sense of the assurance of their salvation. That they truly are children of God. He didn't want his harsh and pointed and explosive words to cause the true believers in the congregation to lose heart in the sense that they might come to the conclusion that they're not even children of God. Notice, first of all, in verse 9, the author's confidence in their salvation. The confidence of their salvation. In verse 9, he says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking to you in this way. Right away, you get the sense of the tenderness the author feels toward his readers. He calls them beloved. If you look at this in the Greek, the, the Greek word here is agapetos, the root of which you are familiar with, agape. It's the love of God. It's the love that only God and his children, his people, share with one another. These were people with whom he shared a deep and mutual love that was wrought in heaven itself. They were mutually bound together by a deep sense of love and affection that came out by virtue of receiving grace, the grace of sonship, the grace of salvation, the grace of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. More than not wanting them to fall away, that is what he wanted. But beyond that, his desire was that they live in confident assurance regarding their salvation. He wanted them to be sure and not living a life that is constantly doubting whether or not their heart has truly been changed. 
whether or not the Holy Spirit really resides there. And do not think this was a groundless or sentimental kind of confidence. No, his confidence in their salvation was based on what he had witnessed in their lives. He refers to it as things that accompany salvation. Things that accompany salvation. He had seen in their lives things that go along that one should expect to see when salvation has taken place in the person's life. We saw last week that authentic Christianity produces visible fruit. Authentic Christianity always produces visible fruit. Remember the story of the great preacher and evangelist D.L. Moody, who was once approached by a stumbling drunk as he walked down the street. And the drunk came over to him, stumbling around and slurring his words and said, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your converts. And Moody said, you must be, because you're certainly not one of the Lord's. And that happens all the time, beloved. The preacher preaches a sermon, stirs the heart, something awakens. They say a few words, they pray a prayer, they go on their merry way, and nothing changes. In fact, Jesus warns in one of his parables that for some people, it's as if a demon has left them temporarily, and in the meantime, the person cleans up his house, his life, but he sinks no real root in the gospel. And after a while, the demon comes back and he says, wow, this place is better than when I left it. And he goes out and grabs seven of his friends, more wicked than he. And when they come back and indwell the man, his, his last state is worse than his first. There was no assurance because there was no reality of salvation. It was a false conversion. D.L. Moody could make such a bold, decisive judgment because the fruit of this man's life was so apparent. But not so with these beloved saints. Their lives were full of the sweet fruit of righteousness. Their lives had something that we frequently talk about here. I love a cordless mic because I can wander around. I know some of you are going to have a heart attack that I just left the pulpit, but that's okay. <laughs> this cup a little while ago had ice in it and water. If I had another cup up here that didn't have any ice and water in it, there would be a difference between the two, not only in their weight, but on the outside. They would feel different. You know why they would feel different? Because this is Texas. We've got a lot of humidity here, and ice in water does something to the outside of the cup. What's it called? Condensation. What's happening is there is now something on the inside and what's on the inside is making something happen on the outside. I like to call it holy condensation. We look for it in people's lives. If you claim to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to be able to do this. I want to come to your life and say, anything there? Anything there? You say there's something inside. Is there anything there? Anything on the outside that we can witness, that we can verify, that gives authentication to your profession? That's why James says, anybody can say they have faith, but do you have works? Because your works authenticate your faith. 
Your works will authenticate whether or not you are truly a child of God. It's not that your works save. It's that your works testify to your salvation. Is there holy condensation in your life? And what the answer was to that question, had he asked it in that way, is absolutely. I see in your lives the external evidence that you are children of God. And so in verse 9, we read about the author's confidence of their salvation. Second, we see the evidence of their salvation. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your, what's the next word? Work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. That's a busy verse. It's an active verse. The idea that God will not forget their Work points to the promise that God intends to reward those who are found faithful in what they do. He has promised to do so. You've heard the phrase, you cannot outgive God. Well, you, can, you cannot outdo his faithfulness. You can never outdo his promises. He has promised to reward. To not make good on that promise would be unjust. The author is saying, we know the attributes of God, right? We know God is righteous and holy and good and that he never changes. He cannot be unjust. He has seen your labor in the Lord. He has not forgotten his promise to you. And he will not overlook your faithfulness. You will be blessed. You will be blessed. Now, I'll come back to the idea of work here in just a minute, but first, look again at verse 10 and notice what kind of work he was talking about. It was a work that was motivated by love for God's name. It was a work that was motivated by love for God's name. The name of God in Scripture, that is, whenever N-A-M-E is used, his name. Jesus talks about praying in my name. Whenever that kind of phraseology is used in Scripture, it also refers to the person of God in his entirety. When it talks about praying in Jesus' name, it means, Father, we're not just asking for some sinful luxury and tacking Jesus' name on it as if it's some kind of magic word. Therefore, you have to give us whatever it is we want. Lord, I want a new car in Jesus' name. Well, I want a new job. I don't like this job. I don't like this wife. I don't like this husband. Give me a new one in Jesus' name. Abracadabra. That's not what it's about. Praying in Jesus' name means praying in such a way that is consistent with the very attributes of God. Is your request holy? Is your request full of love for the other person? Is your request designed to proclaim and set on display the excellencies of Jesus Christ? Is your request bent on magnifying His glory? That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. In fact, that phrase is used so much, you'll often hear me and Charlie and Brent up here saying, we pray it by the authority 
of Jesus' name. That's just our attempt to get us to think, what are we saying here at the end? Are we saying in Jesus' name because we think it's the magic word to make God do what we want him to do? Or are we saying, no, I've thought about this in the short time that I've had here, and I think God will be pleased with what I've just asked for. And so I pray it by the authority of his word, by the authority of his name, by the authority of his person. And so the name of God in Scripture is a reference to his person in his entirety. God's name stands for all that he is. His, to love his name is to live with a passion for the glory of God in your life. Do you love his name? Do you love his name? And by the way, just as a side note, we say the name Jesus around here a lot. And there's a reason for that. Because I've noticed in churchianity, in, in Western Christianity, we've become a little bit embarrassed about saying the word Jesus. We're a little bit ashamed of the name. And so we pray this in your name, we pray it in the name, we pray it in the name, we pray it in your son. We like all those other phrases, but we tend to shy away from Jesus. And so we go out of our way here to use that name a lot. Because he is everything to us. And I do not want on the last day for the Lord to return and find that I stood here in this pulpit before you and was found ashamed of the name. It's not just the name Jesus. Jesus goes by a lot of other names. The second person of Trinity has a lot of other names as well. But that's the name we know best. And we must proclaim it. We must not be ashamed of it. We must speak it with boldness. And love for God is what the apostle here was talking about. You loved his name. You know what that means? I see the love of God in you. I have seen that you love God. I wonder how many of us the apostle could say that about. Love our business. Love your family. Love the things of the world. Do you love God? Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, If God were your father, you would love me. But they didn't love him. They hated him. They were very religious people. They were even following some semblance of the law that God Almighty had passed down. And yet they didn't love God. And that was manifest in the reality that they didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't love God's Son. The author is saying, you know why I have confidence in your salvation? Because I see something in you. I see that you love God. You love His holiness. You love His sovereignty. You love His, uh, His mercy and His grace. You even love His discipline. You love God. And when Jesus, you remember, restored Peter in John chapter 21. Remember Peter had denied the Lord three times. The Lord was killed. 
He was raised again on the third day. He began making appearances on the Lord's day. That's an interesting topic. He only appears on the Lord's day after that, at least for a while. And then when the boys are out fishing, children, he called them, they weren't catching anything. He'd done this before. And they see him on the beach and he calls out to them, children, you haven't caught anything, have you? No, we've been fishing all night. They're not sure who he is yet. He says, well, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And John says to Peter, it's the Lord. (laughs) They throw their nets in. Maybe the other way around. They threw the nets in and they started pulling up all these fish. And John says, Peter, it's the Lord. And nobody else can do that. Peter jumps in the water. They all come up to the beach, dragging these nets. They get to where Jesus is. By the way, he's already got fish. He's already got breakfast going for them. Demonstrating he doesn't need a net. He can do as he pleases. And he gets into a conversation with Peter after breakfast. And he's about to do something with Peter. You know what he's about to do? He's about ready to restore Peter to the work of the ministry. He's about ready to say, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. In other words, take care of my flock, Peter. Take care of my flock. And lead these other guys to do the same thing. Take care of my flock. And so he pulls Peter aside. And you would think, if that's the goal, he might pull him aside and say, Peter, do you love my flock? Do you love these men? Do you love these people who keep badgering us for food and miracles and all that stuff which we freely give? Do you love them? That's not what he says. He said, Peter, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know my heart. I love you, but not like I should. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, I love you. Not like I should. I love you. Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And he was grieved that the Lord had asked him three times, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. I'll never say that I alone will die in your in place of all the other disciples when they run. I'll never say I am above sinning. I am above Turning my back on you, Lord, you know all things. You know I, phileo, love you like a friend. And the Lord says, tend my lambs. Minister, Peter, minister. But here's the key. Ministry must come first, not for a love for people. Any liberal unbeliever can do that. But it must come first from a love for God. It's a love for God that is the fuel and the energy that propels us into ministry. We had a bunch of people over our house last night. It was really only three couples, but when it's with my family, you know, it's, it's always big. And we had some girls over to the house just to take care of things. You know, make sure the meal's right, make sure it's served, make sure it's cleaned up. We just don't want to do any work. It was great. And uh, it was a wonderful way for the girls to minister. And I heard about one of the comments that was made afterwards, you know, young girls 
uh, cleaning. You know, sometimes that doesn't mix well. And they got done and said, wow, that was good. That was a blessing. This was different. What was the difference? Serving God. Your love for God propels you into ministry, and it doesn't matter what God calls you to. It's the delight of your heart. You wonder how missionaries do it. You wonder how they go to these jungles and give their lives. It's real simple. They love God more than they love the world. And so he says, I see this in you. I see that loving God comes first. Ministry comes later. In fact, ministry is the fruit of loving God. And this is consistent with the way God established the Ten Commandments, isn't it? First, he gave four commandments that speak to the loving God. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make an idol, etc., etc. And then six commands to love one another. But there is the first table and then the second table. You must read the first first. First things first. Do the main thing first. Love God. And then love people. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And so the first evidence the author observes regarding their salvation is their obvious love for God. But that's not all. Their love for God did propel them into ministry. Loving God filled them with a desire to serve people, and especially the people of God. And that's what he's speaking of when he writes. Look at this verse. Verse 10. In having ministered and still ministering to the saints. There were people in this congregation who were fixing to turn away. They were running toward the wrong goalpost. But you know what? They weren't the only people in that congregation. There were some people in the congregation that didn't matter. Didn't matter what level of persecution. Didn't matter what was happening outside. Didn't matter about the false brothers inside. They loved God and they were going to serve to the bitter end. And the author is saying, I've seen that. I've seen it with my own eyes. And that's what he's speaking about here in this verse. These beloved saints had a long history that extended all the way up to the present in sacrificial ministry to the church. That church was in turmoil. Can you imagine? People who were tempted to turn away like what he was describing in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. That kind of stuff was happening in the body. And yet, there were people there who just kept on trucking, kept on moving. They see everything that's going on around them and said, yes, but we will not be unfaithful. And that's what he's speaking about. And by the way, there's a word for this kind of faithfulness. You know what it is? Perseverance. This is the perseverance of the saints. Many in this little congregation were not shrinking back. They were not falling away. Even though being a Christian in these days were hard, they did not become weary in doing what was right. They kept on trusting God. They kept on moving forward. They fixed their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God. 
And that's the way it should be for us, beloved. Yes, God has saved us by His grace, but He has saved us unto good works. He has saved us by grace, but He has saved us unto good works. Everybody knows Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not of works so that no one can boast. And we put a period there and say, that's it. That's all we need to know. That is not where he stopped writing. Verse 10 says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has planned beforehand that we would walk in them. Yes, you are saved by grace, but you are saved unto good works. If you are saved by grace, there ought to be good works in your life. There ought to be some holy condensation. There ought to be some evidence on the outside that the Holy Spirit is on the inside. There ought to be something visible that indicates something invisible. And if there is no visible manifestation, then perhaps the invisible is really not even existent. Saving grace always produces working faith. I want you to say that together with me. Ready? Saving grace always produces working faith. Say it again. Saving grace always produces working faith. That's right. Faith works. Faith works. Martin Luther once wrote, Oh, this faith. I mean, this is the guy who started the Reformation, right? This is the guy who rediscovered the gospel. And told the Catholic Church, you're wrong. It's not by works. It's by grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. And yet it was Martin Luther who said, Oh, this faith is a living, busy, active, powerful thing. It is impossible that it should not be ceaselessly doing that which is good. It does not even ask whether good works should be done. But before the question can be asked, it has already done them. And it is constantly engaged in doing them. But he who does not do such works is a man without faith. He gropes and casts about to find faith and find good works, not knowing what either of them really is, and yet prattles and idly multiplies word about faith and good works. He's saying they don't even understand the gospel. You see, the reason the author of Hebrews was confident in the salvation of many in this little church was precisely because their faith was working. Their faith was working. It was an energized faith. It was a sufficiently fueled faith. Even though times were hard, they continued ministering to the saints. And they did it because they loved the name. They loved God. Nevertheless, some were not as confident in their own salvation as the author was about their salvation. He could see it, but they had trouble seeing it. And by the way, just as another aside, when you're in the midst of temptation, when you're in the midst of spiritual battle, nothing seems clear, let alone your own salvation. 
There is no way. Even if you walk that razor-thin edge, standing on God's promises, not falling off to sin, either to the left or to the right, not falling into a sin of omission, let alone a sin of commission, you're walking that line, you're praying, God, help me not sin with my mouth or anything else. And even if at the end you find that you've been victorious, you may still feel awful about it. And you may still wonder about your own spiritual maturity. Why do I even feel bad? If I really was victorious, why do I feel bad? Listen, you can't walk through temptation. You can't walk through that minefield. You can't go through the warfare without getting some dirt and mud on you. It's going to happen. And it's hard to see the reality of the Spirit's work in your life when you're in that kind of a battle. But the author of Hebrews could see it. Let me tell you what I see in you. I see that you love His name. And I see that manifest in your love and ministry that has continued even to this difficult day to the saints. It was risky business, and yet they kept up with it. Some of them weren't confident about their own salvation. But he wanted them to live in the knowledge and assurance of their own salvation. And so first he speaks of his confidence of their salvation. And second, he speaks of the evidence of their salvation. And now finally, he speaks of the assurance of their salvation. The assurance of their salvation. Look at verse 11. And we desire that each one of you should... Each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Inherit the promises. Now, just a contextual note here, inherit the promise. What's he referring to? Well, he's referring to salvation, obviously. But he's playing on what he had said earlier about the Israelites, how they were led out of Egypt. They had all of these spiritual experiences. They walked through the Red Sea. They had the manna. They saw God on Mount Sinai. They got the law. They got the tabernacle. And they got all the way up to the promised land, and they stopped. And they didn't enter their inheritance. Rather, they turned their backs on God's promises, and they wandered for 40 years. And every man over 20 years old died in that desert. And the author of Hebrews is saying, it's not going to happen to you. It's not going to happen to you. I see what's in your life. That could be wrong, but I want to encourage you with this. I see the love of God in your hearts, and I see that it's propelling you into risky ministry to the saints. And what am I to conclude? I mean, why would you do that if you weren't born again? And so I want you to know true assurance of your salvation so that you, through faith and patience, will in the end inherit the promise. It's as if he is saying, this is the way J.C. Ryle would say it, when you enter the final port, when you enter, cross that border into heaven, When you arrive in that ship of salvation that God has put you on, I want you entering that harbor full sail. I want your sails to be full. I want your ship to be moving fast when you get to heaven. I want you to have confidence when you get there without any doubting. And you can. 
He just reminded them of how God would not forget their labor of love toward his people. And now he's saying, we desire for you to know the assurance you really have. God will not forget, and we desire that you know. And where does that confident assurance come from? Well, first, it comes from a diligent hope. A diligent hope. The full assurance of your salvation begins with diligence. It's not just something you sit around and wait to come upon you. I guarantee you will never know the full assurance of your salvation apart from a life of diligent service to other people because you loved God's name. Is it possible to serve others and not be saved? Sure it is. It is possible to serve people with the wrong motive. But one of the characteristics of born-again people is a desire to bless and to serve for the glory of God. To give, to give even until it hurts. To sacrifice, to work. The assured hope of your salvation should be a diligent rather than a sluggish hope. And look what he says, verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. By the way, full assurance. John Calvin says in classical literature, full assurance or fullness of assurance. The word fullness there was used two ways in classical literature. One was, as I quoted Ryle a little earlier, about full sail. The sail of your ship is full to capacity. And the other usage was a tree that was burdened with fruit. It was burgeoning with fruit. It was heavy with fruit. That's what full assurance is all about. Seeing what God is doing in your life and being sure. It's a diligent hope. It's a diligent hope. It's not a sluggish hope. We desire that each one of you should know the same diligence so as to realize the full hope Assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish. Dull is what the Greek word means. Lazy, feckless, indolent. I don't care. I don't give a rip. I'm just going to allow the current to take me wherever the current wants to take me kind of attitude. There's no assurance there. But you should have assurance. You who are ministering to the saints at your own peril. For the love of God's name. And secondly, confident assurance comes not only from a diligent hope, but from a trusting hope. A trusting hope. Look again at verse 12. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith, etc. Those who through faith, he's setting this up for chapter 11, right? The whole point of chapter 11 where the author reminds us of the Old Testament saints, is to demonstrate what faith looks like. And you remember that classic New Testament passage, not only the whole chapter, but that one verse, Hebrews 11, 6, he writes, And without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is, and that he is what? The rewarder. Don't be embarrassed about pursuing the reward. As long as your reward is more of God, more of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could all those men and women in chapter 11 persevere through such astounding difficulties? 
It's because they trust God in the midst of every circumstance. They believe that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. People who experience full assurance are people who have not only a diligent hope, but a trusting hope. They believe God. Even when the day looks really rough, the circumstances are difficult, they say, Lord, I don't understand this. I don't know why it's come. And I don't know where it's going. But I trust you. Help me be faithful. When I can't pay the bill, and I don't know why, Lord, I thought I was doing everything right. And here's something outside of my control comes along, and now I can't do it. Do you jettison your faith? Or do you say, Lord, I don't understand this, but I trust you. I trust you. Or maybe it was your own foolishness that got you into trouble. doesn't matter what's your response. It ought to be the same. Lord, I've sinned. Please forgive me. I confess that what I did was wrong. But I believe this is grace. I believe you're doing something that I can't see or understand. Oh, Lord, let's not repeat this. Help me get it right now. I trust you. Help me change. And so we need not only a confident assurance, but a a confident hope, but a, a diligent hope, but a trusting hope, a trusting hope. And third, their assurance rests in a persevering hope, a persevering hope. How do the Old Testament saints inherit the promise? Through faith and patience. Look at it, verse 12. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith, that's a trusting hope, and patience, that's a persevering hope, inherit the promise. And they believe that God would bring them into their promised reward at just precisely the right time. And that's what he meant in verse 11 when he said he wanted them to realize the full assurance until the end. Until the end. I want you to be sure all the way to the end. In other words, their assurance was based not only on diligence and trust, but on perseverance as, as well. So if you're a ch- true children of, child of God, then the author of Hebrews wants you to come into the full assurance of knowing that you belong to Christ, that you are His. You should have confidence that you are His child and not go through life with an ever-present sense of uncertainty. And so that behooves us to ask, where are you in terms of assurance of your salvation? Do you know that you're a child of God? Are you confident that He is done and is doing this wonderful work in you which he has promised to continue working in you until the day of Jesus Christ? Do you see the grace of God in your heart and cherish it and trust it? I believe some of you nod your heads when I say things like that in confident assurance, yes. Some of you would even testify, and I've heard this, that from the day that you first believed until now, you have never once doubted. Praise God for that. There is both internal and external evidence in your life that you belong to Him. But there are others, however, 
who may be genuinely born again, but for some reason continue to struggle with doubts. Continue to struggle with doubts. This is so common. Continue year after year after year to struggle with doubts about your salvation. I'd like to spend the remainder of our time together, which I know isn't very long, five minutes, wanting to encourage you. Because you see, the reality of the matter is that some people who are truly born again continue to struggle with assurance, though they are born again. J.C. Ryle again said, There are always some people who think well of themselves when God thinks ill, just as there are some who think ill of themselves when God thinks well. He goes on to write, I do not shrink from saying that by grace... um, Many have a sufficient faith to flee to Christ. Sufficient faith really to lay hold of Him. Really to trust Him. Really to be the child of God. Really to be saved. And yet, to His last day, never be free of much anxiety and doubt and fear. Those of us who have a sober and steady confidence that we are indeed born again need to be very careful. We need to be very careful not to be quick to judge another brother or sister simply because they struggle with the assurance of their salvation. If you come to me and you say, Pastor Dan, I'm struggling. You know what I'm going to say? Good. Better to struggle than to be cavalier about this. And yet I don't know that that's God's best. Those of us who have a sober, steady confidence in it need to be careful that we don't project that onto other people. We must be careful not to make the gate smaller and narrower than the Scripture does. True, it's not possible to have the flower without the root, but it is possible to have the root without the flower. You get it? It is possible to have genuine salvation and yet not have a full assurance, not to have a sail that's full of confidence. Just as it is also possible that you could have a sail full of confidence and not really be going anywhere. We need to be careful. And I'm persuaded that the people who are able to to steer the most steady course and accomplish most for God are people who really do realize the full assurance of the hope that is within them. But not everyone has this level of confidence. Let me suggest three possible causes for a lack of assurance in a true believer. And I'm talking about true believers here. Number one, perhaps they have a cloudy view of justification. A cloudy view of justification. If I were to ask you, what does justification in the New Testament mean? You would say, to be justified is to be what? Declared righteous. God, not based on any merit of yours, declares you righteous on the basis of the merits of Jesus Christ. And so many Christians would confess that they believe and even would defend the teaching that salvation is by grace alone, apart from any human merit. But at the same time, they judge their own standing before God in the practical realm based on some perceived sense of merit and demerit. 
They have a skewed view of justification. So that whenever they're tempted, or whenever they sin, even if they confess it and repent of it, they begin thinking, oh, maybe I'm not even a Christian. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. And they begin to go down. And this can lead to some serious consequences. It can lead to serious despair, serious hopelessness. And that ought not be. If they do something, they perceive the honor of the Lord. They feel good about their salvation. But if they sin, oh my goodness, even if they're quick to confess and repent of it, they suddenly feel less secure about their salvation. We need to remind ourselves, beloved, that being justified is a thing entirely without us. It is God's work. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. And even the faith that we exercise is a gift of God's grace. According to God's word, we are redeemed sinners. We are justified sinners. We are renewed sinners. But we are sinners still. And we will be sinners until the day of Jesus Christ. We need to have a good balance on this. We need to have a a good understanding of this, or else we could fall off one way or the other, either being too cavalier, because look at all the good works of my doing, or we can tank out in despair and say, oh no, I'm not even saved. And for a child of God, neither one are healthy. Secondly, slothfulness about growth and grace. Slothfulness or sluggishness about growth and grace. Many people appear to think that once they're converted, there's nothing more to be done. From that moment on, we just rest in the easy chair. We lie back and chill out until Jesus comes. And they forget that Scripture calls us to increase and grow and abound more and more and add to our faith this and that and the other. We are to be growing. Why? Because where there is life, there is growth. And if you're not growing, then it's no surprise that you lack assurance. Again, Ryle writes, one thing we may depend on, there is an inseparable connection between diligence and assurance. Give diligence, Peter says, to make your calling and election sure. You see the connection? It's God's work. It's His calling. It's His election. But you be diligent to be sure of that in your own heart. The more diligent we are to sow the seeds of righteousness in our lives, the more abundant will be the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, giving evidence that we are children of God. And a third reason, and perhaps there's more, is an inconsistent spiritual walk. Again, Ryle writes, With grief and sorrow, I feel constrained to say that I fear nothing more frequently prevents men attaining an assured hope than this. The stream of professing Christianity in this day, it's back in the 1800s, in this day is far wider than it formerly was, and I am afraid we must admit at the same time it is much less deep. And if it was much less deep for him, how much shallower is it it for us? It's a precious truth that our salvation depends entirely upon God and God alone. His grace and not our works of the law. Nevertheless, we must not forget that our sense of salvation depends much on our manner of living. And if we are inconsistent, 
Inconsistency will dim our, dim our eyes and bring clouds between us and the sun, and we will wonder if the Spirit even indwells us, when indeed He does. A true believer who is living under the frequent discipline of the Lord for sloth and inconsistency, for not doing what he knows God wants him to do in matters of the heart, this person will struggle to sense that he is a child of God. And that's the way it is. I think there are times when God removes his presence from us, though we believe. He removes that sense of his presence, sometimes just to make us desire him more. But usually, if we lack assurance, it's because we are either sinning Sins of commission or we are committing some sin of omission. We're either doing something that God doesn't want us to do or we are neglecting to do something that we know God wants us to do. But know this for certain. If your faith is in Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, then you are born again. You are a child of God. But if you lack the joy and the confidence of your salvation, then more often than not, there is something that needs attention in your life. And so pursue it. That's what the author of Hebrews wanted. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and perseverance, patience, Inherit the promise. You see, beloved, assurance of salvation is rooted in a working, loving, trusting, persevering faith. Let's pray.